Well, good morning. I want to start just by saying thank you for praying for our group of students that were at Snowbird last weekend. We had 104 students and leaders in Andrews, North Carolina, and we had a great weekend and a great time, and we felt your prayers and and are thankful for uh, your support from here. This morning, I'm going to begin a three-week sermon series on the I Am statements from the book of John, the Gospel of John. Uh, His Gospel is probably one of my favorite books in the Bible uh, because it's so unique. You see, John, he uh, uh, lists eight miracles, but only six of those are only found in the book of John. We see in the the Gospel of John uh, very personal conversations that aren't listed in the other Gospels. We see the Last Supper, it's not listed anywhere else. And we see these seven I Am statements of things that Jesus said about himself. And John is the only one that gives us these statements. And so John is writing to the lost, trying to convince them that Jesus is God's son. And in fact, he gives us a very clear purpose statement for his letter. In John chapter 20 and verse 30, it said this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded um, in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, the key word in the Gospel of John is the word believe. In fact, 263 times in the New Testament you're going to find the word believe. 98 of those are in the Gospel of John. So 40% of them are in his letter. And so he's writing to help us believe in who Jesus Christ is. So we'll cover over the next three weeks, we'll cover three of these seven I am statements. And this morning we're going to begin in John chapter 8 and verse 12 where he says, I am the light of the world. Where he's illuminating the path of salvation for us. Now before we hit that text, I want to jump in just to try to set the stage of what's taking place. We're going to begin in John chapter 7 verse 2. John chapter 7, 2 says this, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So the context of what's taking place, the setting of what's happening uh, at the moment when Jesus makes this statement is this annual festival event beginning and ending with a Sabbath day of rest. You see, Jewish men were required to make a pilgrimage three times a year back to Jerusalem in the spring for the Passover for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in the summer for the Feast of Weeks, and then in the fall for this Feast of Booths, or sometimes called Tabernacles. So during this Feast of Booths, each family would would, uh, live in a a structure that they would make. They would would pilgrimage down to Jerusalem, and they would live in a structure made of, of sticks and branches and leafy limbs, and they would do this to remind themselves of when they lived in structures like these when they were wandering around the wilderness because of the unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel. And so during that time they lived in these structures, these temporary things that they could build and, and that was, they used the materials of whatever they had around them at the time. So they lived in these temporary structures during that time. And so at this feast it was a reminder back to the wilderness wanderings and their heritage. And so, you know, it ought to be easy in one sense for us of anybody to be able to envision what it's like for thousands of people to, to you know, come into a city and, and put up tents and live and enjoy a festival for some period of time in, a, in the community of Bonnaroo that could kind of give us a general picture of what's taking place. But this festival 
was all about a celebration. It was about thanksgiving to God for the harvest that they had just gathered. And so it was a way for them to say thank you and, and, and to remind themselves again of their wanderings and that God had provided for them ever since the wilderness wanderings and has provided again each year. And so again, envision hundreds of tents, envision thousands of people scattered around the town of Jerusalem. I've got a picture I want to show you and it'll kind of give us um, just a general idea. Wow, that doesn't really show the whole picture. Uh, that's just the way it is. We're going to work with it. So you can see a little bit of the surroundings around it. The red right here at this little pointer. Um, if you can see the temple there, that, that triangular or that uh, rectangular shape there is the temple. And the red outlines the, the walls of the, of the city of Jerusalem. And, and on the, the bottom right-hand corner, the, the, in the southeast corner there, the pool of, of Shalom is, is, or Siloam, excuse me, is covered up. But there in the temple, you can see the temple. And so there would have been all throughout the city and, and all around the, the Kidron Valley, all around that area would have been these structures of all these people coming in to Jerusalem. I want to show you one more picture. You can see there the, the temple there. Here's just zooming in on what an illustration of what that temple looked like. And so in the outskirts all around and on the inside of the temple, you can see that would have been the, the court of Gentiles is what it was called because anybody could be in that area of the temple. And we're going to talk in a moment specifically about uh, the temple that you can see right there in the middle of the temple where you can see the Holy of Holies and right in front of that is the court of women. Those are important. Take note of those. We'll be back to those in just a moment. But in John chapter 7, the beginning there of that, of that chapter, we see that Jesus' brothers were headed into Jerusalem for this festival and they wanted Jesus to go. They were trying to, uh, to get him to go. They, they didn't recognize him as the Messiah, as, as the Son of God, but they couldn't deny his miracles. And so they, they recognize that Jesus is gaining a following of people and they think, what better way to gain a following of people than to go to where there's a lot of people and perform more of these miracles. And so Jesus' brothers are trying to get him to go uh, to Jerusalem, but, but Jesus recognizes he's already uh, suffered persecution there. He knows that they're trying to arrest and kill him and he knows that his hour has not yet come. And so we learn that Jesus you know, kind of privately sneaks up to Jerusalem and, and is, is quiet for a few days and avoids the crowds. But then in John seven fourteen, it says that, uh, that he, begin, he began going to the temple and teaching about the middle of the week. And so his teaching, as he begins teaching there in the temple, it causes disbelief. It causes debate among the people. It causes division between the people. So Jesus, you see, he's making these radical claims in the temple. And the people, uh, we watch as the people are divided over what they're going to do with the claims that he's making. Is Jesus a Messiah? Is Jesus a prophet? Is Jesus just a good teacher? Is Jesus the Son of God? And so, th so the people are uh, deciding what they believe about Jesus. And many put their faith in Jesus but most do not. In fact, some of those, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, that ruling body, the religious elite, all opposed Jesus for various reasons. As the feast continues, we see different scenes of Jesus interacting with people and talking with them about who he is, and, and that takes place through the, the majority of chapter 7. But I want us to focus in on, on, on chapter 7, verse 37. We're going we're gonna, to Go there to, and see what it, he describes there. John says, this is the last day of the feast, the great day. I want you to see why Jesus 
is a master teacher. You see, he uses the events, the things that are going on around him as a teachable moment. And on this great day, the last day of the feast, we're going to see that he uses two symbols to teach us who he is. He uses water and light. So in verse 37, Jesus stood up and he cried out in front of the people. Um, he, he wanted them all to be able to hear what he was saying. He cries out and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, there's our key word, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, this is symbolic because it's believed that, that uh, what was taking place during this feast at the moment, each day, the priest would take a golden pitcher and they would walk out of the temple. The, the priests, some of them resided there in the, in the temple um, they're in the, the rooms around the temple and, and they would take a golden pitcher and they would walk out of the temple and they'd walk down to the Pool of Siloam and they would fill that p- uh, pitcher up. They were leading a processional or parade of people that would go along with them and they would take that pitcher of water back up to the temple and they would enter into the water gate into the altar of the temple and they would pour that water out on the altar of the temple. And first, I guess, they would, they would make a lap around the altar. And then they would pour that water out, signifying, just thanking God for the sacrifice that he made and the provisions that he's made through them. But here's the thing, on the last day, on the great day, they did that processional and they came back up. But this time, they walked around the altar seven times signifying the the battle of Jericho and that God protected them and and they were able to defeat Jericho and win that battle and, and, and conquer the promised land. So after witnessing that is when they believed that Jesus stood up and cried out and made this statement about living water. But again, this statement causes division. Jesus uses a second symbol that is right in front of them as well. And this is the the story continues in John chapter 8 and verse 12. And Jesus says this is the second I am statement that he says. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I want to show you one other picture of the temple. This again is an illustration. So this is inside the The court of women inside, you can see the holy of holies is the tall structure in the middle. But you see those four large golden lampstands. These golden lampstands are said to have been about 75 feet tall. And um, a a young man would climb a ladder up and they would, uh, you could see the four different candelabras going off each way. And so a young man would climb up with about a 10 gallon container of oil and he would fill each of those bowls with oil and he would ignite that oil on fire. And so you can picture these 16 magnificent flames shooting into the sky, burning, illuminating not only the entire temple, but since the temple was positioned as the highest point there of the city, it would illuminate the entire city of Jerusalem. And so the people knew what this light represented. And so the people were familiar with seeing that. And God and Jesus stood in the, in the midst of the court of women and, and made this comment that he is the light of the world. And so what a picture for us to see in the midst of these flames shooting up that Jesus is saying, I'm the light to salvation. 
You see, it's a symbolic, it's, it's a second symbol of light that he uses. It's symbolic of that he is the fulfillment of Scripture. See, God had promised that a great light would shine out of Galilee and that Jesus reminded his critics that he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Listen to what the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Verse 6 is what we're all familiar with. A few verses later, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See these words brought to life. Um, the reality that Jesus is the light of salvation. And he makes this statement with the backdrop of these amazing light candelabras behind him. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Numerous Old Testament scriptures use light uh, to describe God and his righteousness and his, his saving work. Literally, since the beginning, light has been a good thing. Even since the creation in Genesis chapter 1, God created light. And he said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and he said that it was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And as the nation of Israel fled out of bondage under Pharaoh, uh, God led them by a pillar of fire to give them light. And this light never departed from them and directed them where to go. They were taught to sing in the Psalms, Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And they read the words of Psalm 119, 105, it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. You see, light is used to describe God, his qualities of purity, his quality of holiness, his quality of righteousness, and all that is good, and then darkness, on the other hand, all throughout Scripture, is used to describe sin, and is used to describe evil, and used to describe Satan. And John, in his gospel, he likewise loved the imagery of light. He began his gospel uh, by saying in, in John 1, in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, In him, referring to Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And finally, John writes in his later letter in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him, but proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and it's a powerful claim. And he's showing that he is the fulfillment of of scripture he is the way to salvation so maybe you're thinking tim why a history lesson we're not even jewish why do we care about the feast of booths why do we care about the rituals why do we care about what took place in the temple and those pictures i want us to be 
I want us to understand why we should be concerned because those pictures that those people saw that day, they were making a decision about who Jesus was and we're no different than them. We're faced with the decision of who Jesus is. Is he the light of the world unto salvation for all who would believe? See, all throughout the letter, John has shared these claims that Jesus made to the people in the temple. And those two chapters, here's where, and that, you know, many thought they were blasphemous lies. Listen, here's a few of them. I and the Father are one. I am sent by my Father. My Father bears witness about me. Jesus said, God is with me. And he says, I will, I always do the things that pleases my Father. He said, if anyone keeps my word, they will never see death. You see the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all these claims that Jesus made about himself, they didn't believe. The reality is they didn't believe the origin of Jesus, that God is here, he's God and abode from heaven here on earth. They didn't know the purpose of Jesus, that he came to sacrifice to die for the sins of the world. They didn't realize the authority of Jesus, that says all authority under heaven and earth is his. They didn't accept the destiny of Jesus that he was going to die for the sins of the world, that he would be raised from the dead and return to his heavenly father. They didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. Yet Jesus claimed, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This morning, I want you to see two ways that Jesus warned those listening in the temple during the feast and a promise of hope that he gave them. The first warning is this. It's to those who put religion over a relationship with Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, they were all religious people, but few believed that Jesus was Savior that he was Messiah. They all knew the law of God, but didn't know the God of the law. See, they never experienced the forgiveness of God. They never experienced the love of God, but they knew the laws and they put their hope in keeping these 613 commandments instead of their faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Some of the harshest words that Jesus spoke were to these religious men. There's seven woes listed to the scribes and the Pharisees that are recorded in Matthew 23. I'm going to read only one of them. Here in Matthew 23, verse 27, it says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous, to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Ouch. Let us not be people who are religious, but don't have a genuine relationship with Jesus. You see, religious people are more concerned about making an appearance to church for what they might, for what others might think of them, than to come and see the light of Christ and obey his word. The religious are more concerned with power, prestige, maybe position, than a relationship with Jesus. See, religion is all about the things uh, that you have to do, while a relationship is all about the things that you want to do. 
Religion is about duty and a relationship is about desire. During seminary when we were living in Louisville, um, one summer I worked a part-time job for a man who owned a, a residential, uh, um, like he'd put in irrigation systems for, for homes. And so I worked for him installing these irrigation systems. And he was a religious man. He was a religious man. He loved going to church for the social aspect of it. He told me he even joined the church. He attended this mega church in Louisville. And he told me he even joined that particular church because of the perks. One of the perks that came with it is you could freely advertise in a newspaper. We have a four-page newsletter. They had a newspaper. Went out to all their people. And he said, man, it's great. I get free advertisement to all these wealthy people in this church. I love going. It's such a, such a great event each week. That man played church. That man was only a religious man. He had no relationship with Jesus. He couldn't tell you about coming to faith in Jesus. Are you here this morning to check a box? Are you here this morning to get your attendance star? Are you here this morning to be changed by the light of Christ? Don't put religion in place of a true relationship with Jesus Christ. The second warning that we can see in this passage that Jesus gives is this. A spiritual heritage doesn't guarantee you salvation in Christ. A spiritual heritage doesn't guarantee your salvation in Christ. Let me explain. You are not a Christian because your parents are a Christian. You're not a Christian because your grandparents are a Christian. Faith in Christ is an individual and personal thing. And for 28 verses, these Pharisees claimed righteousness because they were the children of Abraham. You see, we know from Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God. It was, it was counted to him as righteousness because he had faith in what God said to him in the word of God. And so in Romans 4, Paul explains that it's through faith that Abraham was made righteous, that the children of God could also be made righteous by placing their faith in God the same way that Abraham did. Abraham's children didn't automatically uh, become righteous because of Abraham's faith. Listen to Romans chapter 4, verse 21. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and are raised for our justification. Don't hold on to a false hope that you are saved because of your grandfather's love for the Lord. Each of us is accountable to God for ourselves and you must have genuine faith on your own. You see, these Pharisees were putting their faith in the fact that they were in the lineage, the line of Abraham instead of putting their hope in Jesus. You know, maybe, let me explain it like this. Maybe everybody in your family has gone to the University of, of Tennessee and you're a senior, you're considering where you're going to college and you're your grandparents are wanting you to go to UT. Your parents are wanting you to go to UT. They really talk it up to you. But by your attending UT doesn't automatically grant you a diploma. No, if you decide to go to UT, you have to take the classes. You have to do the work. You have to pass the test. You have to get your degree. They might talk about it. 
They might tell you how great it was. They might buy you the best-looking sweatshirt that you can wear on campus. But that doesn't grant you a diploma. No different than having grandparents or parents uh, that believe in Jesus grant you faith in Christ. Now, here's the thing. I hope your grandparents and your parents tell you about Jesus. I hope that they bring you to church. I hope that they buy you a Bible and that you read the Bible together and that they point you to Christ. But their faith in Christ doesn't grant you salvation. If being religious and having a stellar spiritual background won't get you into heaven, then how can you get to heaven? You see, Jesus gives them a promise. The promise from Jesus is this. The gospel truth sets you free from the bondage of sin. Jesus spoke in chapter 8, verse 31. He said this, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see some that were standing in that temple courtyard that day put their faith in Jesus as the light of salvation unto the world. This morning you can be free from the bondage of sin. You can believe in Jesus and put your faith in Jesus and trust that he died on the cross for your forgiveness of sins. Listen to what Jesus said to one Pharisee. In John chapter 3, Jesus said this to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, our key word, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus continues, whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know, here's the thing. Nicodemus was present that last day of the feast, that great day in chapter 7, verse 50. Nicodemus is there trying to defend Jesus and ask for a proper hearing instead of them just arresting and killing him. And they laughed him off. But there's one other time that we see about the life of Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. If you go to John chapter 19, you can see that Nicodemus is there with Joseph of Arimathea. And he's getting the body of Jesus after he'd been crucified. And Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to place on Jesus to anoint his body before he is buried and to prepare him for burial. I believe Nicodemus did that because his life had been changed by the light of Christ. Maybe from this conversation that we just read about. Nicodemus had been changed. And Nicodemus is a picture of that promise of hope. The reality is this. God sent his son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus came, lived a perfect, sinless life 
was falsely accused, arrested, hung on a cross, and he died for the forgiveness of your sins and mine, was buried, placed in a tomb, victoriously rose from the grave three days later so that we could have life in him. This morning, will you come to the light of life? Will you come to the light of Jesus? Jesus wants to offer you hope and peace this morning. Will you surrender to King Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can come to the light, that you offer us hope, that you offer us forgiveness. And though we're not standing in that temple to hear those words audibly from Christ, we're hearing from his word now that he wants to give us peace and forgiveness, that we don't have to remain in the bondage of sin and slavery, but we can have new life, eternal life in him. Father, I pray this morning that you open our eyes, that we could see your hope, and your love, and your forgiveness. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning, our invitation is different. So I'll be standing out by the, by the welcome desk at the conclusion of our service and invite you to come if, if you want to come to the light of Christ this morning. Maybe you want to come to be a part of this church family. Maybe you've said, you know, I, I believe in Christ, but I, maybe I've been playing church too long and I need to get serious, I need to get committed. Then come, commit yourself to this family. Maybe you want to follow in baptism. Whatever it is, I'll be there at the, at the welcome desk at the conclusion of the service and would love to have a conversation with you. Let's stand and sing.